Okay, so today we're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. A notoriously, <clears throat> excuse me, a notoriously difficult passage of the Scripture. But the narrative thread that runs through the passage is not hard to identify. And it begins with the Pharisees' question as to when the kingdom of God is coming. The central matter here is when. It appears, however, that the Pharisees' question has missed the mark, at least judging by Jesus' response. The passage reads, verses 20 and 21, He answered them, that's the Pharisees, and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is in your midst. So the Pharisees inquire as to the when of the kingdom, suspecting it to be yet future. But Jesus declares its immediate presence. Here we have a connection with our passage last week. Like the spiritual blindness of the nine lepers who were cleansed but failed to recognize Jesus, so the Pharisees cannot see what is manifestly obvious in their very midst. The kingdom of God, Jesus declares, is not coming with signs to be observed, such that it can be pointed to and pointed out, among other things. Instead, Jesus says it's more subtle. Now here, a translation difficulty confronts us. The statement, the kingdom of God is in your midst, can just as easily be translated, is within you. Older translations, if maybe you have a King James or I think the New King James as well, they opt for the, or for the former, the kingdom is uh, within you. And while the more modern translations opt for the latter. And as all things, opinions divide based on prior commitments. Those who hold to a more social and political understanding of the kingdom argue that it ought to be translated in your midst, while those who hold to a more dualistic and spiritual understanding argue for the it is within you translation. And it's not a small matter. Whether it is is among you or whether it is within you, the meaning changes substantially one way or the other. Now, I have my own prior commitments, but it seems the question can be settled on linguistic grounds rather than theological. Now, in a footnote in his translation on the New Testament, David Bentley Hart remarks, ethnos, which is the Greek word, or entos, really does properly mean within or inside of, not among. And Luke, in both his gospel and the book of Acts, when, reading, when meaning to say among or amid, always uses either the phrase en meso or just en, followed by a dative plural. He uses entos here with a distinct and special import. So, the Pharisees' inept question, to the Pharisees' inept question, Jesus responds, the kingdom of God is within you, which in turn raises another question. Why would Jesus say that to the Pharisees? who were quite obviously hardened 
in unbelief. It raises more questions than answers, which I'm content to leave you to struggle with for now. And as for my prior commitments, I believe the kingdom is both. A spiritual domain that is not confined there, but shapes every facet of life, social and political. In sum, to the Pharisees' question of when, Jesus responds, now. Regardless of it is within you or it is among you, the kingdom, Jesus says, is here. But then he takes the Pharisees' question of when, and he turns it to his disciples also. Look at now verse 22. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Again, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. So the Pharisees receive an enigmatic answer, more to provoke questions than to provide answers. And while the disciples are given a fuller explanation, to them, as Jesus says elsewhere, it has been granted to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So in some way, everything that follows, directed toward the disciples and directed toward us, is connected to the Pharisees' original question. We are still dealing with the when of their, uh, their request. Now, before we dive headlong into the passage, we need to acknowledge the various interpretations on the table. And there are quite a few interpretations, and they can be divvied up according to the dominant eschatological or end times views. But the easiest way to divide them up, rather than trying to chronicle each one piece by piece, is to uh, divide them along the lines of past and future interpretation. Now, there are those who hold the events described in this passage as entirely past, and then there are those who hold them as entirely future. Now, the past few understands the events described in our passage, namely that latter part, um, they understand them in relation to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. While the future view understands them in relation to Jesus' return at the end of history. And neither view is trite or unfounded. They both have much to recommend them. Now, I originally planned to do a detailed summary of both positions, but it became too long and too involved. We'll have to make do with brief overviews of each, attending to uh, the broad strokes rather than the minor exegetical details. And I want to make the case that rather than it being, that rather than we being confronted with an either-or binary option, um, that it's more likely a both-and uh, case. So rather than either or, both and, and I'll get to that at the end of my explanation here. So the past view, known today as preterism, um, you can look that up on your own, preterism, meaning being in the past, it understands our passage, as I've said, in relation to the events of A.D. 70, namely the destruction of Jerusalem. 
Now, on the surface, it has much going for it. Jesus' words are not directed to a far distant generation, but to his disciples. He tells them, they will say to you, look there, look here. And then he gives them very concrete instructions. Do not go away. Do not run after them. Now, it's quite hard to interpret those words as having no meaning for his present disciples. And moreover, the preterist camp also makes its appeal to Uh, Verse 31, which on the screen reads, On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out, and likewise the one who is in the field must not turn back. Now to their credit, preterists take those words literally. They are concrete instructions to flee Jerusalem when the Roman armies come to lay siege against it. The futurist view which is, again, the one who view these events as entirely to come. The futurist view has no choice, however, but to spiritualize these words. As one commentator notes, flight will be out of the question when the Son of Man appears. And so the saying must here be taken metaphorically. There's nowhere to flee when Jesus comes in his return. So it then This verse is interpreted to mean something about one's disposition toward earthly things, right? Don't be overly tied to them. And there are other arguments to note, um, ones that I had prepared but removed. uh, The distinction between the days, plural, in this passage, and the day, singular. I'd encourage you to look at that note for yourself. Also, the mention of this generation, Jesus says, and other uh, more theological concerns that bring in other passages of Scripture. And of course, for time's sake, we cannot get into those. And I do find many of those arguments compelling. Now, on the other side, the futurist view has its own arguments, and they are um, more obvious. Therefore, they need less attention. And the first is um, in relation to that term, day, the day of the Son of Man. Now, almost any time that's used in Scripture, think phrases such as the day of the Lord or the day of Christ or some other variant along those lines, it refers quite obviously to the end and not some time before that, right? The day of the Lord is the day of Christ's return. It's the last day when judgment will be brought upon the world and the kingdom will be established. Moreover, Jesus' words in verse 24 about his day being like lightning that shines. And then again, his statement in verse 30 that the Son of Man will be revealed seemed to indicate personal presence or rather a personal appearance and at that a very obvious one. Now, the preterist camp has their own interpretation on these verses. They would argue rather than a visible appearance, the lightning means to say something like the suddenness of his appearance. Um, But as far as we can tell, no such appearance happened in A.D. 70, no matter how cosmic that event was in its significance. And so that's a very poor explanation of the two sides, but the point is to show that we're presented with an either-or option either past in relation to the events of 
70 AD or to the future in relation to Jesus' return. However, I find no reason that why it cannot be both. In fact, I think there is good reason that it is both in reference to the destruction of Jerusalem and the end to come. So, Jesus' prophetic words do refer to the destruction of Jerusalem. That, to me, seems unavoidable, that these words are very concrete in their reference. But they also prefigure the coming judgment, which seems equally unavoidable. They open up Jesus' words, we might say, or enlarge to contain more than one event, but many. Now, such is the nature of prophetic speech and biblical typology. Now, this case for both and, uh, the both and option, begins with hints already laid in the text, particularly in the flood and the destruction of Sodom, which are types of the judgment to come. Those events, in other words, again, the flood and the fire that rained down from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah, those are not merely self-contained discrete historical happenings, but instead they prefigure and anticipate the last judgment at the end of the age. In other words, they are types or shadows or signs that point beyond themselves and look forward to something else. Now, before we connect those temporal judgments to the last judgment, we need to connect them to one another. Because there are very obvious connections between Noah's flood and the destruction of Sodom. Both events are the end of a world, so to speak. In Noah's case, quite literally. And in Lot's case, figuratively. Now his daughters, remember, they only contrived to sleep with him. Why? Because they thought it was the end of the world. They thought they had to repopulate the human race. In addition... Both men escape with their families, though Lot, unlike Noah, loses his, his wife. And both men drink wine and are plotted against by their children. Ham violates Noah, his father, in the tent, and Lot's daughters intoxicate him to lie with them. So already, already we're dealing with very similar typological connections. They share much in common, but chiefly that they are types of the end, the destruction of the world. Now, the Apostle Peter, he explains this chiefly. And this is Second Peter, a very overlooked uh, uh, epistle in the Scriptures. He says in chapter 3 of his second epistle, verses 5 and 7, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Once the world was destroyed with water, flooded, and again it will be destroyed, this time with fire. The earth and its works will be burned up, the Apostle Peter says later. And something new in which righteousness dwells will come to be. The flood pattern 
will be repeated and fulfilled. Judgment, cleansing, righteousness. The same is also said for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, in the very same epistle, Peter writes, verses 2, verses 6 and 7, and then verse 9, If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So, more explicitly this time, the apostle says that the fiery destruction that came upon Sodom is an example. Now, the word in the Greek is hypodigema, and more literally, it means model or pattern. It's the same word used in Hebrews chapter 8 when the author of that epistle tells us that Moses built the tabernacle based off a pattern that he had seen in heaven. So what happened to those ancient cities is emblematic, a pattern, a type of what will come upon the world at the end. Therefore, we have, one, a watery judgment, and two, a fiery judgment as types of the end-time judgment. And so it seems, if my reading is right, that the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 is another New Testament type of the end. It, too, does not stand as a discrete event, but in a line, along with these other events that points toward the final judgment. And so to read this passage rightly, it must be read on two distinct levels, one referring to A.D. 70 and another referring to some undisclosed time in the future when Jesus returns. Now, I try not to make ideas up on my own, so this view has been a common way of reading the passage throughout church history. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, he, he remarks, and I think this is basically right, he says in this chapter, respect is had especially to two events. One, the destruction of Jerusalem and the works of God which accompanied it. The other, to the end of the world. And some things are most applicable to one and other, others to another, as is common in those parts of Scripture that have respect to various events. So, I think something along those lines is most preferable. One event foreshadows, typifies another. And that way, Jesus can speak of both of them in one breath. I don't think we have to decide assigning one verse to the past and another to the future, or some similar approach to that. And you'll find that that's actually a hard thing to do because no one agrees when, like what applies to what and how to do it. Instead, I, I, I think it's best to realize that each verse speaks to both events, past and future. And moreover, that these words are not merely instructions for those in the past, but for us too, those awaiting the day of the Son of Man. So, on a purely historical level, that is, again, as it pertains to the past, the passage is evidently clear, right, when it's read in that light. Jesus is instructing, 
warning his disciples about the catastrophic judgment that would come upon Jerusalem. As it was in the days of Noah and Lot, so will it be when the city, the holy city, Zion, is destroyed. Everything will go on as normal, in other words. People will do what they have always done, eat and drink, marry and be given in marriage, buy and sell, plant and build. The idea is not that these activities are sinful, but that in these activities, the people of Jerusalem are not prepared, nor will they be prepared. While they settle into their normal ways, they ought to be urgent, even frantic, but the judgment will come upon them unexpected and unaware. Christ warns, therefore, that when judgment comes, they must be prepared to leave everything behind. Look at verses 31 and 33. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now, it seems likely that Jesus' prophetic word about the destruction of Jerusalem and his instruction to his disciples to be prepared to part with their goods and their material wealth is very much the reason why the Jerusalem church sold its property and redistributed its wealth, as recorded in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. That event makes a lot more sense with the imminent destruction of the city looming, prophesied to take place within their lifetime. Again, it was the only wise thing to do. The city is going to be destroyed, and so the church knew to sell everything they had and to prepare to flee when that time came. Therefore, the Jerusalem church made a very deliberate effort not to be like Lot's wife. Remember, she fleeing Sodom looked back and turned to a pillar of salt. They didn't want to be tied to anything, sold it all so that they could flee and escape when the time was necessary. So rather than choosing to keep their life, they lost it. And uh, they lost it ultimately to preserve it. Now, historically speaking, the church had all but abandoned Jerusalem before AD 70, partly due to persecution, partly uh, it seems likely due to the prophecy. And only a remnant remained, Josephus tells us, when the Roman army started to encircle Jerusalem. And as those events started to play out, he tells us of a prophecy that the Christians heard and they fled. And that was it. And that was the beginning of the end for Jewish and Christian relations. They fled and Jerusalem was tragically, horrifically destroyed. We have Josephus' works in the library um, I have them, and I'd like to share them with you if you want. But in his war, uh, Jewish wars, he describes those events. So that's as it relates to the past. Now, as these words relate to Jesus' return, here termed the day of the Son of Man, they have much to say to us. And namely, that as it was in times past, a widespread unresponsiveness to judgment, so will it be prior to the end. Now, it's a danger that confronts every generation to become spellbound by the affairs of the present age 
and indifferent toward the affairs of the age to come. Now again, the activities that characterize the time before judgment are not inherently wicked. On the contrary, they're, they're good. Eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, marrying and being given in marriage, these are good things, part and parcel of everyday life. The point is not their badness, but that these normal affairs are dramatically, unexpectedly interrupted by divine judgment. Put simply, they had become distractions, conditioning the people to a business-as-usual attitude that ultimately proved to be their undoing. And as such, it's the attitude that Jesus inoculates us against. Rather than becoming so entangled in the affairs of the world, we are to travel lightly, so to speak. In other words, our aim is not to go out from the world, but to inhabit the world properly, Christianly. It calls to mind the apostles' uh, instructions to Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, or chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And if everyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. So there's a certain distance that we must have from what the Apostle Paul here calls the affairs of everyday life in order to run without hindrance. Now, for some, that might be abstaining from the digital life which dominates and monopolizes our time and attention. For others, it might be saying no to certain activities and responsibilities that would divide our loyalties. And for still others, it might look like something else. But the point is, and we know what this looks like in our life, we cannot settle too comfortably into the rhythms and patterns of this world. And the reason being, the frame of this world is passing away under judgment. When the day of the Son of Man comes, this present evil age will be consumed. Its ways will be forgotten and something new will come to be. As the Apostle John says in his first epistle, chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And he says this, The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives or abides forever. Now, it's obviously backward for us as citizens of the heavenly kingdom to invest ourselves too completely in this world, which is passing away. Instead, we're like those fleeing the watery deluge, seeking refuge in the ark that will carry us into the new world. We're like those fleeing fire and brimstone from heaven, not turning back, but running away with a single-minded focus. Or put another way, we're not like Lot's wife, who loved the world, which Sodom and Gomorrah 
most obviously represents, and could not part with it. We're to be like Noah. We're to be even like Lot, who escaped. But more on Lot's wife in a moment. I'd like to make another point first. To be oriented toward this age to come, that is to travel lightly, right? to live with a heavenly perspective, to live with uh, 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 an attention and a mind that's focused toward things to come, one does not need to be um, a prophecy watcher. Now we can and ought to distinguish between what's called a theology of eschatological eminence and a chronology of eschatological eminence. Now those are fancy words that make a very simple distinction. A chronology, note the word, chronology of eminence operates on the conviction that the absolute end of the world is only months or years or decades away. And that's what I mean by a prophecy watcher. Those men who almost always misread geopolitical affairs and wrongly predict the end times, making, I might add, a nice income while they do. And that's one way of motivating the church to be prepared for the future. But I think the proof is in the pudding. Rather than leading to faith and hope and love, it more often produces suspicion and fear and hysteria about what might happen. A theology of eminence, however, as opposed to a chronology of eminence, is closer to what the Apostle Paul advocates for in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should act as they should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For, he says, the form of this world is passing away. Rather than trying to lead, read the tea leaves, we are encouraged to recognize that the form or the external structures of this world are currently passing away. It's not so much speculation about the end, right, trying to read what's happening, as it is an understanding that the present order is under judgment and rapidly fading. Before Jesus ascends to heaven, his disciples ask him, is it the time now for you to establish the kingdom? And he says, it's not given for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority. Our concern lies elsewhere. Instead, rather than again trying to discern things which are beyond discernment, we look backward knowing that this world is passing away. And the apostle says, we use the world, but as those who did not make full use of it. Or put another way, we occupy the world as those who are not preoccupied by it. We engage the world, but we do not tie ourselves to it. Once again, we're not to leave the world and hold up into a cloister until the end. We are still those who use the world, those who buy and sell, those who mourn and weep, those who marry and are given in marriage. However, our participation in those activities is tempered by the apostles' radical as though. If you're married, he says, be as though who were not married. If you mourn as though you don't mourn. If you weep as though you don't weep. And if you use the world as though you don't. 
As John Calvin says, Paul therefore directs us to a sober and frugal use of things, such as many such as may not impede or retard our course, but may allow of our always hastening toward the goal. Right? We can easily become weighed down by this world. Our souls made sluggish and slothful. But here the Lord encourages, in fact, warns us to pick up the pace. There is a goal, and we are to hasten after it, laying aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And so that leaves us now to conclude with Jesus' words, remember Lot's wife. I'd like to start, however, with Lot. If you go to that Genesis passage in chapter 19, and you kind of read a little bit about Lot, and you know more about him from the wider context, he is a in-between figure. He's an on-the-fence kind of uh, person. Now, he leaves the company of righteous Abraham to go dwell in the wicked city of Sodom and the wider cities around it. There's a first indication what's going on with this man. There he maintains some semblance of a brightness, but he's deeply compromised. In fact, when we encounter him in Genesis 19, the passage says that, and it can be read two ways, either that he's um, by the gate or he dwelling near the gate of the city. You get this picture of Sod, or, uh, of Lot being in between, uh, r- right at the gate, not entirely in Sodom, not entirely out of Sodom. And in the end, he escapes the destruction, but as a disgraced figure who loses everything, literally everything, and who the last we hear of him is what happens with his daughters. He's the type of believer who will be saved in the end, but as the Scripture says, 1 Corinthians 3, as through fire. Right? The, the Scripture says that on that day our works will be tested, and what's made of gold and silver and precious metal will stand the fire. That which is made of wood, hay, and stubble will be burned, but that person will be saved as through fire. That's kind of what we find with Lot. He escapes judgment, but almost with nothing, just by himself. And so when the angels warn Lot about the coming destruction, urging him to flee from the city, the scripture says, in such telling words, that he hesitated. He hesitated. Again, he is this halfway figure, somewhere between judgment and salvation. A man who has failed to make the decisive transition from one life to the other. Even there on the cusp of judgment, he's vacillating. And indeed, if he was left to himself, he would have perished in Sodom. Except the passage says, the angels seized his hand for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. The only reason he got out is because the Lord's compassion. And so Lot and his family, that is his wife and his daughters, they end up escaping the city prior to destruction. When they arrive safely in the city of Zoar, which simply means small, note the angels told him, go to the mountains. He didn't want to go to the mountains, and so they ended up going to the city called Small. Another, another instance of what's going on in Lot's life. Anyway, the scripture says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of those cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife, 
from behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. So we notice two things about Lot's wife. And remember, this Lord says, remember Lot's wife. And the first detail is that she was behind him. Now, if Lot is a type of in-between believer, saved but as through fire, Lot's wife is an unbeliever. She lagged even behind him, from behind Lot. And secondly, in the decisive moment, especially when the angels had told her, don't look back, she looked back. She heaped hesitation upon hesitation and ultimately paid the penalty. And she was turned into a figure of salt. Now, commentators disagree there, but I think one convincing one is she was turned to salt because she lacked wisdom, which is represented by salt. Now, Lot and his wife stand as figures for us to learn from. We remember them, and we seek to take a different path. We don't want to be like the woman who looked back and was turned to a pillar of salt. We don't want to be like the man who escaped with his life but lost everything. Instead, we want to be like Abraham, who had his own troubles, surely, but stood far away from the sinful city and its judgment. Remember Lot's wife. He who keeps his life will lose it, and he who loses his life will keep it. So, But it's ultimately not the fear of judgment that motivates us. Right? That's necessary. There are times when we become so sluggish and so unfeeling that these words of judgment are necessary to awake us. But ultimately what motivates us is what lies ahead. We run more swiftly... Not fleeing from judgment, but toward the kingdom. And so, our goal then is to look ahead. And it's of this goal, the coming kingdom, that Holy Communion reminds us. I say to you, when Jesus instituted these words, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And so as we now prepare uh, to share the supper... Um, as the music will play in the background, I'd like to take this time to respond, if need be, to confess and repent from the worldliness that weighs us down, from any sort of lot-like activity within us, any sort of Lot's wife activity within us, and then to turn our hearts toward Christ and His kingdom and to look ahead. So go ahead and Do that now, and then I'll come in prayer in just a minute.